Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and it's an end-of-term politics special this week as I talk to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the latest from the Labour leadership race and then I cross the Atlantic Ocean with Nikki Wolfe of The Guardian to talk about the US presidential nominations. Well, Parliament has now entered its summer recess, but the Labour leadership contest is far from over. There was a poll this week confirming the New Statesman's earlier reporting that Corbyn is indeed ahead with a sample of Labour members. I'm joined by Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers, and George Eaton, our political editor, to discuss it. Um, Stephen, I'm going to come to you first because you, um, I think actually maybe maybe I'll permit you like 10 to 15 seconds of gloating about your, your poll story because it was there was a, a fair amount of cold water poured on it initially. Yeah, there was... Um... So I reported on two separate surveys I'd seen, both showing a slightly different composition of the bottom two. Uh, but yeah, so in one of them, Kendall is third, in one, Yvette is third. Uh, but Burnham and, and Corbyn, the top two, and Corbyn on course to win in uh, in one of those surveys. And um, yeah, there was a, to me, quite remarkable level of scepticism, um, seeing as obviously you expect campaigns to go, oh, our internal data doesn't show show that but their internal data shows something quite similar to that so the level of hostility was quite surprising but then the times uh, very thoughtfully paid for a public poll and it turned out i was right uh, shock um but the thing i thought was interesting about that was that everybody instantly defaulted to polls are always wrong uh, and george that's not necessarily true is it i mean the overall the election polls were but the exit poll was right although the polling throughout the campaign was very bad. But the, I suppose the one thing that does come up again is, once again, this is a poll that, like the polls during the election, is probably likely to influence the outcome and change the result. Yes, it is. So in some ways, it's actually not helpful for, for Jeremy Corbyn, because I think the fear among his supporters is that this will be the moment that Labour activists take a step back and think, do we actually want him to become leader? Conversely, it could galvanise more... Um, left-wingers outside of Labour to sign up. You know, they may have thought at the start of this contest, you know, am I going to pay £3 to register? He'll finish last like Diane Abbott did. What's the point? They may feel uh, there's a purpose to signing up. But of course, you know, this poll should be you know, treated with some scepticism. Party membership are notoriously difficult to, to poll. It's always hard to get a, a representative sample. But I think the big point is that Jeremy Corbyn is clearly doing much better than anyone expected, including himself. And <laughs> mostly I think wh- wherever he finishes, I don't think he'll win, but whether he finishes second, third, uh, or even or even fourth, the left has been strengthened by this, and, and he will be a figurehead uh, in, in the future. And, so um, on the polls point briefly... The thing we forget is they got the big result in terms of what mattered, the Tory battle, uh, wrong. But they got the SNP right, they got UKIP right, and they got the Lib Dems right. Yeah. Um, so actually, if they were hedge fund managers, everyone would be going, oh, what a great uh, season they'd had. 
So my question is, so to, to go back to 2010, the leadership race then, having a parallels experience, which, which was decided it was Diane Abbott's turn to kind of te- stand up and get a shellacking for the left. She was got on the ballot with votes lent from other um, MPs. She then finished a distant fifth? Yeah, fifth with 7% among members. And and I, let's say there was no Abbott mania. What's different this time round? Um, so I think a couple of things. One, the membership has changed. Uh, there were there were three points in the Parliament when uh, Blairites or David Milibandites or whatever you want to call them left Ed Miliband's party. The Syria vote, uh, the moment when Ed Miliband was cheered for not being Tony Blair, and a third, which embarrassingly is being told about this morning for an article I have yet to write, I have now forgotten. Um, <laughs> but these were those big leaving moments, and then you have people coming in who shared Ed Miliband's uh, beliefs and philosophy, so the party has moved to the left. I also think there's an element that Labour members aren't stupid. They understood that under the last electoral system, they had two options, David Miliband and Ed Miliband. And a lot of them, I think, just first preference the one they they knew could win. And 7% decided to send a message with Diane. Now they know that because MPs don't really matter anymore in terms of deciding who the winner is, they can pick who they genuinely want. Mm, that's interesting. And I wonder whether or not um, you talked, George, about kind of Corbyn mania fading away. If that's even if that is true, what's the the lasting impact of this kind of period? Because it does seem to me the Labour Party is 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 kind of angry and bitter, and actually there's going to be a lot of kind of overheated things that are said over this summer that probably will people will still be kind of cross with each other about in three years' time. Mm. Well, one consequence is that Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham have both adopted positions probably to the left of where they. Um, originally originally planned because they are reliant on second preferences from Jeremy Corbyn supporters um, assuming he doesn't w- he doesn't win of course um, and I think the left of the party including uh, the new intake um, a lot of whom voted against the uh, welfare bill and rebelled against Harriet Harman's position will be far more vocal in this parliament a much stronger presence than it than it was in the last parliament and um, you know in addition to the points Stephen made I think what's also changed is that you have parties which um, are to the left of Labour in rhetoric and or in policy, in power. In Scotland, um, in Greece, obviously, with Syriza, you have parties uh, such as Podemos in Spain uh, who are performing well. And so the far left's arguments that you actually need to be more anti-austerity, that you don't shouldn't move closer towards the Conservatives, closer towards the centre, have a plausibility that they didn't have in, in 2010. OK, let's do what I think a lot of um, our readers have said, is, you know, enough of this sort of electoral wargaming. Jeremy Corbyn has got positions which are popular with um, a, a reasonable chunk of the population. So, and we know generally there are very, you know, things that are considered to be really left-wing, like renationalisation of the railways, supported by I think sixty-six percent of the population. Stephen, actually, electorally, what is the Cor- is the Corbyn platform electable? Is it definitely unelectable? I mean, nothing's definite. It it could be that post uh, the financial crisis, people no longer want moderate social democracy, but are keen on a sort of hard left, uh, what Tony Blair today called a traditional leftist platform. I mean, it doesn't seem likely, just because if you wanted a hard left, uh, a more left wing platform last time, there were lots of parties offering it. You know, it's just like if if Tusk had, you know, the trade union solidarity and something thingy. Feel free to write angry tweets about how I've got that party saying completely wrong. Um, if, if yeah, people that, that party was available to vote for. Yeah, there, there were lots of parties of the variegated left that were available to vote for. You poll Green voters, and almost half of them think Labour were too soft on uh, on social security, which personally I find terrifying. But um, 
it, yeah, I just don't see the electoral evidence that there is this bank of lefty voters out there. Because you talk about the people who didn't vote. Well, some of those people are conservatives who will, you know, in the, if there is any chance of a Corbyn government will turn out to vote in huge numbers. Uh, for so Corbyn. what about this argument then, um, then, George, that if you, if, if, if you offer people, you know, you can't pander to what people already sort of expressed a preference for. You should instead just say what you think and hope that everybody will turn up to, to support you. Mm. It's been tried before, of course, and um, Labour tried it in the 1980s when they decided basically that the electorate were wrong to have voted for the uh, Conservatives at the 83 election and, and uh, the 1979 election. They'd offer them a more left-wing platform and it, and, it, and it didn't work, that you have to meet the electorate where they are. I mean, George Osborne has a good line on this. He says, in opposition, you move to the centre. In government, you move the centre. And, and he has clearly done that. You know, in opposition, he signed up to Labour spending plans when the Conservatives were seen as the pro-cuts party and that was doing them a lot of damage. And uh, now in government, he's implemented obviously huge austerity. Um, I mean, I think the other point is that yes, of course, a lot of the policies that Corbyn advocates are popular on paper and individually. So are a lot of Ed Miliband's. The problem is that policy is less important than a lot of commentators and, and people in, in Westminster imagine. It's uh, economic competence and trust on the economy is crucial as we've seen and also who your leader is is it someone that people relate to is it someone who people think could uh, hold their own on the world stage who could be a, a competent prime minister and I, I it, people didn't think that of Ed Miliband and they're certainly not going to think that of of Jeremy Corbyn and also working with the preconceptions presumably that people already have of your party so if you are the Tory party and you do something that is a little bit left wing people kind of think that's that's you know that's you moving to say that's you being moderate essentially and this very same thing coming out of the mouths of Labour politicians seems has a very different complexion on it I think that's part of the I mean you've referred to this a kind of only Nixon can go to China syndrome in in your column Um, I'm gonna this is very unfair but uh, your both of you. Who is your feeling at the moment will will win both the leader and the deputy leader, and then we can kind of catch up and track this as a, as it changes. The deputy leadership is a shoe in for Tom Watson, unless um, something unless there's events. a black swan event. <laughs> events, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think the leadership, Andy Burnham. I think um, he is only six percent behind Jeremy Corbyn in, in the runoff at this stage, and there's quite a lot of the election left to run. The result isn't announced until. The 12th of September voting closes shortly before that. Um, There's a theory among a lot of commentators and among MPs that Yvette Cooper will win by picking up second preferences, but I just don't think she'll pick up enough to to beat Andy Burnham. Stephen, is that a consensus for you? Yeah, I think the one variable is that as it starts to look and people start to cotton on to the fact it's going to be Corbyn or Corbyn or Burnham for the leadership, whether or not people start to go, oh, let's have a woman for deputy, and you could start to see uh, that eating into Tom Watson's lead. But that is the only way I can see George being wrong, is if people start to notice it's going to be a bloke at the top. OK, well, I'll, um, I'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. But for the moment, thank you very much, George and Stephen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm joined by Nikki Wolf, who reported for the New Statesman from Ohio, a wonderfully named place called, I'm going to say Dulsville, I mean Hicksville, don't I, Nikki? Um, and is now a writer for the US Guardian. First of all, I want to ask you, um, can you give me an idea of the state of the US presidential race? Because what's come up over here is that, you know, on the Democratic side, Hillary is way out in front, but the Republicans are once again kind of scrabbling around for a serious candidate while Donald Trump sucks all the oxygen out of the room. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And I think a lot of it comes from having such a clear front runner and everyone basically thinking that the, um, the, the, uh, it's a, so it's conclusion. so not for Hillary, right? Yeah. So, but the thing is, I mean, she's had health problems before. She does have, I mean, Bill Clinton ruled that he's an advantage in some terms is also, you know, is a liability, I think it's fair to say. What happens, hypothetically, if something happens to, to Hillary? The Democrats at that point don't have anyone waiting in the wings, do they? I, I would say that the, probably the person that the Democrats have waiting in the wings the most, and this might be my personal preference, is Joe Biden, who I think is... <laughs> That's because you love Joe Biden, I adore isn't it? Joe Biden. I think he's, but he's also, he's been the most powerful vice president that uh, America's had in, in probably the best part of a century. Um, and the most effective, and he understands how Capitol Hill works, which is probably something that any president is now going to have to have. But explain that to me, because the kind of conventional wisdom is that Dick Cheney basically pulled the strings for, for George W. Bush. Um, yes, I think that's that's certainly true. There was uh, a cabal of the neocons uh, around him. But in, in terms of working with the president for his agenda as opposed to having... Because George W. Bush was on track to be quite an effective uh home policy president, mm. which is a really difficult thing uh, for a president to be, and I think it's what Obama wanted to be uh, as well, but the president's powers were all kind of geared towards uh, international and, and foreign relations. Um, but yeah, I mean, having having a, a vice president like Joe Biden, who's so well-liked as well as being uh, so effective, and well-liked not just nationally, he polls, uh, he has polled at various points higher than Obama. Um, and well-liked within the party and well-liked on Capitol Hill is an unusual thing. But I think that's a fairly unlikely scenario. I think uh, if Hillary was going to... Hillary, the Hillary campaign is taking so little chances uh, that essentially they will have checked every possible skeleton in the closet, every possible mm. uh, health issue. And I don't think she would have announced the run if she wasn't pretty certain that she was going to... And on the Republican side then, so I know you've been talking to, about people like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, but at the moment it's all, all Trump all the time, isn't it? But Trump's a fantastically entertaining story and everyone kind of loves him. Um, but you've got to remember that there were times during the, the 2012 um, nomination race where Herman Cain was polling in. Oh, I remember uh, Herman Cain. Uh, Michelle Bachman was polling Rick Santorum, first. Mike Huckabee, yeah, all the these, greats. These are all candidates. So that in a way, because Iowa was the first state uh, to, um, to poll, and then New Hampshire is the, the first proper, both of which are kind of wildcard states, you do early in the race have a lot of people looking at the polling in those places, and that's not necessarily what people forget is in order to win the the nomination for president, they also have to win the California Republican Party and the sort of the more serious areas. They have to win the whole country, and so these these sort of 
I hesitate to call him a joke candidate because it's you, you can't really wipe someone off who's polling that far ahead. And has that much money. And has that much money. But um, I, I think the, the really interesting uh, thing to game out is whether or not the Republicans will be smart enough to nominate a candidate from Florida. Because I think about their only route to beating Hillary is if they nominate a candidate from Florida who could put that state in the bag. And that would be Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. So, I mean, this is all down to the vagaries of the electoral college system, right? So you essentially have to find somebody who can pick up enough swing states that they can... And there are some states that just are always vote one way or always vote the other. Yeah. And, but but there are... But how many electoral college votes does Florida have? Is it 11 or... Uh, is it... No, it's more than that. It's somewhere in the region of... Uh, I can't remember the exact number. It's, it's 30 or 40. But enough... To, wow, OK, so enough to seriously... Um, and let's talk about Jeb Bush. Uh, leading on the discovery that Jeb stands for his name. John right? Ellis Bush, yeah. So Jeb, saying Jeb Bush is like saying... Uh, pin, number, pin number, ATM machine. But he's got an interesting story for a Republican, hasn't he? Because he speaks Spanish, he's got a Hispanic wife. It's going to be very hard to paint him as a kind of, you know, um, kind of angry white man of the South, essentially. Yeah, and uh, and um, as I wrote for, for the magazine it's a little while back, the, the Latino vote is going to be an incredibly important one and a growingly important um, and he polls extremely well in that community, especially when he speaks Spanish. This problem, of course, is that his uh, the main weapon against Hillary that the Republicans would want to use is that she is establishment, that she, you know... She's married to a former president. And it's, it's very difficult for someone whose dad and brother were president to make that argument. And finally, I just want to talk to you a little bit about Obama. I thought there was a really extraordinary moment when, um, in the wake of the terrible shootings in Charleston, South Carolina, Obama went to speak in, in a black church, and it was a historically black church that was attacked one where a slave rebellion was planned. And then halfway through the speech, he paused and started singing um, Amazing yeah. Grace. And it was a real proper kind of chills down it was, it, I think the it's spine. most amazing, the, the best speech I've ever heard him give. Just heart-stuffingly... Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the one that he gave on the night that he was made president about, you know, on, on the bridge at Selma and the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice is a kind of, I mean, I can't imagine any British politician carrying off that level of emotional, you know, and sincerity as well without it looking com completely forced. But I wondered if, you know, and I think one of the things that came out in the commentary of that was it was, it was, it was such a statement to have a black president in a black mm. church singing, uh, you know, a, a song that comes from, you know, the time of the abolition campaigns. Is he now going to take more chances, or is the is the eye already on? I don't want to ruin the chances of the Democrats winning the presidency again. I mean, is you know he's not kind of putting his feet up and just letting Joe Biden say whatever he wants. And yeah, I mean, uh, there was a lot of talk uh, when the uh, Democrats lost the Senate in the midterms uh, about Obama being a lame duck uh, final years of his presidency, and I think he's he's really turned the tables on that. He's, he's having an amazing final couple of years. Cuba, Affordable Carrot, um, protected in the Supreme Court, gay marriage legal everywhere. Iran. Iran recently. And he went to visit a federal prison as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, which is a huge statement we to give, and gave another speech there say, sort of saying, or at least hinting that he's going to attempt to address the enormous... Um, which I thought was incredible. I mean, there was, I think it was Gary Young wrote this once in a column that there are more now more black men imprisoned in America than there were slaves before um, before the abolition of slavery. I yeah. mean, it is it is a, 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 a like a whole sort of 
generations, several generations of young men have been have been incarcerated, often on really unfair things like three strike laws, right? So you have two yeah. drug offences and then you get a parking ticket and suddenly you're in a supermax jail for 25 years. I mean, How, the statistic that really struck me about that is that if you're born like in 2015, in modern-day America, if you are born black, you have a one in three chance of going to prison. It's, which is, I think, is I think it's one of those things that's really because it is particularly culturally specific, and the conversation is so influenced by the legacy of slavery. And that was a great Tarnahisi Coates piece about you know about reparations, about things like I didn't realize like sort of housing zoning and things like that, and, segre and the segregation of housing, and which still happens now. You get still get landlords who mysteriously turn down all of their all, all of the black clients who come to see them for housing. How much of that can you know, how much of that is only kind of only Nixon can go to China? How much of that is is it? Does it help for Obama to be the first black president? I mean, I, I think uh, a lot in the community and a lot in the, the Black Lives Matter movement would have liked it to have helped a lot more than it mm. appears to have done. Um, uh, there's a feeling, and, and I'm not sure it's entirely fair, but there's a feeling that for a while Obama was quite careful not to be, especially before um, he, while he was running for a second term, not to, not to, to scare, white, scare people. white people. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think certainly now with his eye on the legacy, he's going to start trying to, to make up a little lost ground on that. But the, the situation is so monumentally mm. terrible that it's difficult. And with, uh, without control of the House, without control of the Senate, it's difficult to know exactly, and, and also without control of so many of these uh, issues which are done on a, on a local basis. So actually the, the president is, is the figurehead of the country, but the uh, black prison population, for example, is a, a result of um, laws that were made on the state level. And a lot of these local state houses are Republican controlled, um, a lot of these states have Republican governors, and there's almost nothing Obama can do about the black prison population in, say, Texas or Louisiana—it's mm. just—it's just not within the president's purview. Um, on that slightly depressing note, I hope you'll come back and join us, maybe over Skype, because I know you're going back to America. But um, give us more updates on the what will no doubt be the madness of yeah. the U.S. presidential it's race. It's going to get madder before it gets saner. <laughs> um, but for the moment, thank you very much, Nikki Wolf. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.